to the Constructionist Podcast hosted by Caleb. Just as we grow gardens and build buildings, God is building you through the renewing of your mind. The sufficiency of the scriptures is paramount in your journey and every week Caleb will challenge you to make them a central part of your life and worldview. Join us now as we explore the world through the ancient lens of God's word. As of late, we've been going through the Psalms here on the Constructionist Podcast, and we looked at Psalm 2 a couple of times and had some interesting thoughts about it, but now we're going to move on to Psalm 14, which falls under the category of what is called by scholars an imprecatory psalm. And I'm sure that you, in your daily conversation with people, love to use the word imprecatory because it makes you sound very clever. But it's obviously not something that we use on a regular basis. But uh, in our endeavor to understand the Word of God, which in the process means that we understand the mind of God, we have to understand why some of these psalms are imprecatory, or in other words, psalms that tend to be kind of mean toward other people. Okay, So let me give you an example. We're looking at Psalm 14. And it says in this psalm, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But in Hebrew, the words there is is actually not there. So literally it says the fool has said in his heart, no God, as in like a definitive statement against God. So when that's done, there's a problem. Because we have to start by saying or understanding who God really is. And that's how we come to terms with the Psalms that say some rather hard things. There are Psalms in the Bible that declare that God needs to wipe out his enemies, to destroy them, to make sure nobody ever remembers them again, to kill their children, to curse their parents, you know, all sorts of these sort of strong and definitive statements of aggression and judgment and punishment and, um, you know, just bad things to happen to people. And scholars have fought with these psalms for a long time because they claim that they don't fit the character or nature of God as a God of love. But let's stop and think for a minute. These psalms, all psalms, are as a whole expressions of human experience, expressions of uh, the human soul crying out to God. So when we consider our own self, our own life, just think about yourself. One of the concepts of wisdom that comes out of the Bible is that wisdom finds its reflection, finds its source I don't want to say source, but I should say examples. Wisdom finds its examples in the day-to-day living. So all through Ecclesiastes and all through Proverbs and the Psalms and the book of Job, the, the writers look at the world around them and then they reflect upon those things. So this idea of judgment, this idea of If someone does something evil or wicked or bad or wrong, there must be some form of punishment, some form of retribution, some form of chastisement on that person, because how can they get away with that? 
we think that way of humans. The, the you know, how many of you have got children or were children at one point, and somebody did something mean to you, and you punched them in the nose, or you know, at the very least, you hoped that they would trip and fall down the stairs or something like that. It it happens to all of us at, at some point in all of our lives. We kind of want something bad to happen, or if we hear about something bad happening to somebody else, we are secretly pleased about it because we didn't really like that person, or there was something they did to us that was kind of mean to us, or or didn't settle well with us. And so, if we hear about them getting a flat tire on the side of the road, or them losing their job, or something, we sort of internally giggle out of a kind of glee. Now, be honest with yourself, you've done it. And I know I've done it. And I don't like it about myself, but it's but we're human. So the Psalms, in their collective sense, is the human experience. But the Psalms are also in the Bible, so they're inspired. So it's God working through the human back to himself, if you can put it that way. So even though in our human functioning, sometimes we want bad things to happen to people because they do bad things. In one sense, that's not wrong. It's been built into us because we have a sense of justice, perhaps. I don't want to say the word fairness because fairness isn't correct, <laughs> but I do want to say the word justice if it's if it's a legitimate evil or wrong that the person did. They lied to you or they um, you know, stole your car. I've had my car stolen. You know, I have no idea who did it, but, you know, part of me is like, I remember when my car was stolen and the only thing I felt good about it was it had barely any fuel in it. And I thought, well, maybe they ran out of gas on the side of the road or something like that, but I never got my car back. So maybe they didn't. Um, but anyway, these kind of things happen. And so Psalm 14 begins with the fool has said in his heart, no God, a definitive statement against God. He he stomps his foot and he says to God, no, I'm not doing whatever it is you're doing. Now, this is our starting point for understanding these imprecatory psalms, these psalms that make statements toward people that just sound horrible. Like, we don't want, why would we as loving Christians or people who who say that God is a God of love, why would we want this kind of terrible thing to happen to somebody else? But bear in mind that it begins because the person involved or the people group involved have said no to God. Okay, so let's continue reading. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now that verse three there is quoted in Romans chapter three in a long list of verses that Paul uses to make an argument that there is nobody who is naturally good. All humans have sin. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a statement of extremity. Okay? It's not saying people can't do good things. People do. We as humans fluctuate back and forth, back and forth. One minute we say something nice to somebody, the next minute we turn around and we yell at somebody else and tell them that they're a dog or something like that. This is why the book of James says, can, can sweet water and salty water come out of the same spring? And he's talking about the words that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. He says, why is it that we curse on one hand, 
towards somebody, but then bless on the other hand towards somebody. So he's talking about this contradiction within all humans that we function in this world of contradiction, of duality, of compartmentalization, that we we live one way towards something, but then we justify somehow being another way towards somebody else. And so uh, this is what Paul is sort of getting after when he is focusing on the negative side of humanity, saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who does righteous, no, not one. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And yet we know that people do good things. But yet we have a inheritance of sin, which causes us to also be evil. Now, let's consider this again from our perspective of wisdom, that if we look at the world around us, we see things that teach us truth in these matters. So yes, people can do good things, but that doesn't make them good people. Okay. So Jesus had someone come up to him and say, good teacher. And Jesus' response is, is, why do you call me good? There is no one good but one, and that is God. So Jesus has it right in that the only absolute good is God himself. Everybody else is less than good, which means that there's something corrupt or evil or wicked or bad in them. Me, you, it doesn't matter. The little innocent child that was just born to you the other day, at some point, they're going to look at you and say, no. So so this is the way humanity goes. And we all understand this. It's day-to-day living. But if we consider things like um, if you've got a glass of water in front of you and you put one drop of cyanide in it, or to be even more crass, let's say somebody uh, urinates in it or something like that, it, it, it may be a gallon of water, but all of a sudden you're not going to want to drink that. <laughs> So you're like, oh, no, that's gross. I'm not going to drink that. It's been corrupted. So um, this is true of a thousand things. You know, you could have a lady wearing a beautiful dress about to go into a ball or into some award ceremony, and she has this beautiful dress. And just before she goes up on stage, you know, she's she's taking one bite of her of her pie that she's got in front of her, you know, her pudding or her dessert or whatever. And then they call her name to go up and then she accidentally drops it on her dress. And now all of a sudden it's spoiled. Okay. It's just one little blob on her dress. And yet now she's like, Oh, I don't want to go up there. I've got this mark on my dress. And even though 99% of the dress is perfectly fine. So this is how we function all the time. One little thing is funny, and then we think that our world is falling apart. How many teenagers do you know are like, oh no, I have a spot on my face. Oh no, my hair is just not right. Oh no, how come my eyes aren't blue like that person's? They're a little too close together. Oh no, you know, we do this forever, always focusing on some little thing that mars the whole. So this is how we are as humans. We have something within us called sin that mars the whole. So we can say that that person is a good person or that man is a good man. But the reality is the instant that man says something cruel or mean, the instant he doesn't act that is unkind or unloving, he now ceases to be good with quotes around it. He now becomes evil because he is entirely corrupted. This is just the way it goes. So the, the prophet Habakkuk brings this up as well. He's, the God says to him, uh, can that which is holy be corrupted by something 
unholy? And of course, the answer is yes. And then it's, well, can that which is holy impart holiness to something else? And the answer is no, because only God can transform somebody to make them holy, to make them right. We need to be new creations in Christ. This is why the scripture says Jeremiah, Hebrews, Jesus, Paul. This is why it says we need to be a new creation. We need to be transformed. We need to have a new heart put within us. And the old cold heart needs to be taken out. God doesn't clean what's there. He makes things entirely new. So these Psalms that deal with these things are going at a different direction. So they're saying these terrible things for a couple of reasons. Now, there's several psalms like this. There's Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, which we just read, and verse 3 is quoted in the book of Romans. There's also Psalm 53, 1 to 3, Psalm 5, verse 9, uh, Psalm 140, verse 3, Psalm 10, verse 7. There's a number of these psalms. You can, just, you can look them up if you like, or just read the book of Psalms and write them down. That would be even better. So, Something like Psalm 109, verse 8. It's quoted in the New Testament regarding Judas and the need for him to be replaced so that the number of the apostles stays at 12. But the psalm itself is this long rant against those who are against the Lord's servant. So that psalm just goes on and on about lots of terrible things. These are what imprecatory psalms are about. Now, let me give you three different approaches that scholars or academics have tried to make about these psalms, and then I'm going to add another one because I don't think either one of these reasons is actually dealing with the core issue. So first, uh, this is an actual quote. Merely the psalmist's own sentiments before God. Okay, so if if David says something like, well, all have turned aside, they're all corrupt, and there's none who does good, well, that's just David's personal opinion. It's his personal expression, and these are not to be treated as inspired words seen in the other Psalms or in the other parts of the same Psalm. Okay, that's an actual quote, what I just read. Personal expressions that are not to be treated as inspired words seen in the other Psalms or in the other parts of the same Psalm. So in other words, if the psalmist like David or somebody else says something mean about somebody, then that's not inspired. Ignore that. Just his personal opinion. God, God, okay, it's in the Bible, but we're going to say it's not inspired. The problem with that is where do you stop? Do you come across something else in the Bible and say, well, I don't really like the way it says love my neighbor. Uh, Maybe that's not inspired because I really don't feel like loving my neighbor. Well, now you're just doing the exact thing that he says. There's none good, no, not one. So where where do you draw the line? At what point does this work and not work? You know what I mean? So we can't go with that view. We can't just say, well, that's the psalmist's personal opinion. It's not inspired because now we're chopping and changing the Bible and it's saying this is inspired and this isn't. A second reason, uh, the, a second explanation for these kind of terrible psalms that say horrible things about people is that prophetic predictions, this is a quote, prophetic predictions and thus as divine announcements and are not personal sentiments. So it's prophetic. Sorry, that was kind of an odd statement, wasn't it? They're just prophetic predictions. In other words, they're things that will happen in the future and they're not actually personal sentiments. So this gets the the last example focused on the writer of the psalm that is a human 
he's just being a human. That's not inspired. But now in the second one, it's no, it is inspired, uh, but it's prophetic. It's something in the future that we don't have to really worry about because it's a divine announcement. It's something down the road so we can get David off the hook, kind of blame God for the future, and we'll call that good. Eh, whatever. So a third reason is appealing to the covenant. So this idea is like the, the Abrahamic covenant, uh, those who curse you, I will curse, it says. So this is okay when you're talking about national enemies, but what do you do if it's an actual individual? So uh, the Abrahamic covenant was to Abraham, but it was about him as a nation. It was about his descendants. So later, when you have an entire nation called Israel that's under the Abrahamic covenant, then yeah, if uh, Amalek attacks the nation... If some other, you know, if the Assyrians come and attack the nation or if the Egyptians treat the nation a certain way, then God will curse the Egyptians. God will curse the Assyrians. That's okay. But what happens when it's a one-to-one thing? What happens when it's a Jewish person and somebody's mean to them? I mean, this is even true in World War II. The nation of Germany did terrible things to the nation of the Jews, and then God locked them behind the Iron Curtain for 40 years or whatever, however long it was, uh, from 1940-something to 1980-something. So, yeah, about 40 years. So, uh, these kind of things happen on a national scale, and we can see patterns knowing that God orchestrates these things because it fits in with the pattern of the Scripture. But what about on a personal level? That's where it gets a little... Uh, dodgy, because now isn't vengeance mine, saith the Lord? So, uh, yeah, tricky stuff. Um, The Old Testament is a book that we have to wrestle with. So Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He got injured out of it. But the Old Testament records man's expressions toward the one creator God of the universe. So Psalm 5 is a good example of this. Psalm 5, verses 1 to 3, is a prayer to get God's attention and to show our heart's exclusivity to him. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6, is God's character and the sinful. Psalm 5, verses 7 and 8, is David's assessment of himself. And then Psalm 5, verses 9 to 10, contrasts faithlessness, the faithless and their expected judgment. But then Psalm 5, 11 to 12 is the hope of the righteous. So when we read this, we should consider the culture and the language of the Bible and all that kind of thing. But we have to realize that Psalm 14 begins with a statement that a fool says, no, God, no to God. God, God makes a comment to them. They say no, or they say they're, or, or as it's stated here with the, with the words in italics, there is no God. So a fool lives his life as if there is no God. But these psalms are psalms that are the human heart crying out to God. And ultimately, we call this in the whole of the Bible, the Word of God. So even though it's David writing or Peter writing or Jeremiah writing, the whole thing is referred to as the Word of God, meaning that these are God's words back to man. So when a fool says in his heart, no to God, he's addressing God as the supreme being who is a creator of all things. So, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's a oneness to God. All things go to God, and he initiates and is the first cause of all things. 
Now, this is getting into kind of a world of philosophy and things, but as humans, we are saved from the wrath of God to the love of God, if I can put it that way. So all of these psalms that are imprecatory psalms that are kind of psalms stating terrible things about people, we have to accept them as the inspired word of God. We have to accept them as being in the word of God. So things like the Abrahamic covenant to come into play, absolutely, but let's break it down and realize what's going on here. Ultimately, we have God, and ultimately God is judge of the living and the dead. And so these statements that are made that are kind of harsh and hard statements that are made in the book of Psalms, they are there because God has to act as judge to those who say no to him. God can act as a loving father to those who run to him for salvation and abide in his word. Okay. So God in a unity has to fulfill two roles at the same time. He is both impartial judge, but also loving father. It all is incorporated into him and his complete and total wisdom, oneness, fullness, completeness of the ultimate of all things. (laughs) I can put it that way. So all of our thoughts about justice, all of our thoughts about sanctification, compassion, wisdom, um, uh, divine retribution or human human retribution things that are that that are uh, all logic all lots of things find their ultimate culmination in in the person of God who is defined by as the Bible as Yahweh he is who he is Yahweh is so <laughs> I know it's getting a little complicated. But because of that, we can look at the evil of the world and recognize, oh, the evil of the world must be judged by a righteous judge that the world says no to. But then the righteousness of those who walk by faith in God as a loving father, because they have gone through the Lord Jesus Christ, they are the ones who God looks at in love and will redeem and save out of this world in the future. The other half, the ones who say no to God are the ones that God says, well, you said no to me, so I have to say no to you. And then he has to bring this judgment because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. You see what I mean? So we all start out as being in that category, but we shift and we are saved from God and his judgment and wrath to God as a loving father. And this is how we now function as humans. So I hope this helps you understand these imprecatory psalms. Look at them. If you read Psalm, uh, what was it? Well, we just read Psalm 14, but also uh, the other one, Psalm 109 or any of the other ones, uh, Psalm 35, Psalm 58, Psalm 69, Psalm 83, Psalm 137, any of these psalms that are difficult and they say things that you kind of go, oh, but we're supposed to be loving. Yeah, we are. But there also has to be judgment. We still have on this earth judges who make decisions about uh, people and their sin. And we don't call it sin. We call it breaking the law. But these judges are small, tiny little examples of a huge, infinitely wisdom, true, righteous judge who is Yahweh. And that's where we begin to understand why these psalms come down so hard, because he is coming down hard. But our job, what we want to be, is abiding in him. If we abide in his word, we'll abide in his love, and then we can be saved. And that's our hope for basically anybody. So God bless you, and I hope you find these encouraging. If you'd like to support this podcast, go ahead and click on the support link in the show notes, and we will 
put the money toward the show and toward missions and things like that. And God bless you, and keep reading your Bible, wrestle with the Word of God. We look forward to seeing you next time. you for taking the time to listen to our podcast if you were challenged and encouraged by what you heard today please feel free to share it with any friends or family you like you're welcome to email us at calebtheelectrician at gmail.com that's calebtheelectrician at gmail.com and remember to leave a comment at itunes spotify or anywhere that you listen to podcasts 